Hello and welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community, I'm Blaze Bryant. I'm Bria Barthel. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley talking with Nyperg's Ann Rabb about why leading climate groups in the state are demanding that the New York legislature pass rules this year to eliminate the use of fossil fuels in new buildings. Then Elizabeth Press reports from a December deconstruction summit sponsored by TAP, Troy Architecture Practice, and the City of Troy. After that, our own Sina Bazilla Hickey talks with members of Alpha Phi Omega, known as APO, a service fraternity at RPI that helps with projects at the Sanctuary for Independent Media and other sites. And finally, retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson returns for an expanded talk about climate change and local weather. But first, here are some headlines. Oh, the weather outside is frightful as several inches of snow covering the ground here in the capital region starting Sunday night and continuing through Monday into Tuesday. A bit more still to come as the snow is falling here as we speak. As of about noon, On Monday, National Grid was reporting about 3,000 power outages. And of course, as my trusty co-host Bria Barthel just told you, we'll talk more about this with Hugh Johnson. We get, as Bria said, an extended conversation with him. So he will be with us at about 640. Well, we're 40 minutes after the hour, given that this gets broadcast on on, uh, Tuesday mornings. The University of Albany men's basketball coach, Dwayne Killings, has pleaded not guilty to assault charges. He was arraigned virtually in a Kentucky court Monday. Killings is accused of throwing a former player into a locker, then hitting him before a game against Eastern Kentucky last year. To Saratoga County, investigators said a 13-year-old girl missing from Greenfield Center has been safely found. Avery Hammond Mosher had been missing, well, as I said, uh, since Saturday, investigators are not and have not released any information at this time beyond what I've just told you. And still in Saratoga County is reporting an uptick in overdoses. The County Department of Health said there were 10 overdoses last week alone, including one person who died. The age range is from 17 to 41 years old. And for listeners in or around Troy, on Tuesday the 24th, Catholic Charities is offering boxes of free food at the Lansingburg Boys and Girls Club from 9.30 a.m. to about 11. And that's it for the headlines. Yeah, so if you or someone you know is in need, as Bria said, go check out the food pantry. We'll make sure to tell you more about it closer to the end of the show here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine, which is listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can join our team, Go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us 
518-272-2390. Fossil fuels are some of the most dangerous materials impacting the environment. Mark Dunley discusses an upcoming advocacy opportunity with the New York Public Research Interest Groups, commonly called NIPERG. We're joined by Ann Rabe, who is the Environmental Policy Director of NIPERG, the New York Public Interest uh, Research Group. And on uh, Tuesday, uh, January 24th, um, groups that are interested in ending uh, fossil fuels in buildings is holding a lobby day and rally. So, Anne, what what is this particular event about? This event is called the Kick Fossil Fuels Out of Buildings Advocacy Day, and it's all about passing three critical climate reform bills. Um, The All-Electric Building Act to electrify new buildings um, starting in 2024, the Home Energy Affordable Transition Act, and the Energy Efficiency, Equity, and Jobs Act, as well as budget proposals for low and moderate income families. Now, in the Times Union recently, I, I, I saw uh, a big pig uh, hanging out there uh, in the, uh, the well, legislative office building. have a suspicion it's done by my old friend, Gene Stilp. But um, how does the big pig tie in to fossil fuels out of buildings? The big pig, which represents the fossil fuel industry, the big oil and gas companies, the big pig is um, sort of the mascot for the Make Polluters Pay Climate Superfund Act, which is another very important bill to implement the policy bills I just spoke about on on, um, having electric buildings in the future and transitioning off of the fossil fuel industry for the building sector. So the big pig um, is basically represents that bill, which would generate $3 billion a year by p- charging um, those big oil and gas companies for their past greenhouse gas emissions, a fee that goes into this climate super fund. So we'll get back to getting fossil fuels out of buildings. Now the oil electric building act had a lot of movement last session. Um, a lot of it seemed to be over um, 2024 versus 2025 in terms of a timeline to ban uh, fossil fuels, gas, and new buildings. Where does the uh, the governor and, and also this new plan that the uh, so-called Climate Action Council put together, where do they stand on some of these issues related to getting um, fossil fuels out of buildings? Well, We could commend the governor for including the All Electric Building Act proposal in her state of the state and apparently going to be in her budget, which comes out February 1st or so. Um, But there's a problem in terms of delay and weakening the scope. So the Climate Action Council, um, under pressure from the state agencies, um, punted from 2024 start date to a year later, 2025, to have all new buildings that are constructed be all electric, with the excuse of some, you know, some international code, they had, it was delayed, so they have to delay. There's no, there's no substance to that. Um, And so, um, and the governor has has put that in her state of the state as well. According to Bob Howarth, an eminent Cornell University scientist on the Climate Action Council, um, it is critical that we start as soon as possible to electrify all new buildings. That's the cheapest time is to build a building when it's a build a building to be all electric, not to retrofit down the road. That's very expensive. 
And so 2024 is what we are advocating for, and, and we are going to be pressuring the governor to um, turn turn around and go back to 2024, which is needed, and cover all low-rise buildings, which is building seven floors or under. So the Assembly and Senate sponsors introduced bills just last week that would um, require a 2024 start date and all and all low-rise buildings be electrified. Now, I understand there are about 40 to 50,000 new buildings constructed each year in New York State, maybe 5 million existing buildings. What are we doing to help particularly low and moderate income people, like people living in the South End or Arbor Hill or Central North Troy? What needs to happen to, to enable them to join this clean energy transition? Two things. One is we need to pass a Home Energy Affordable Transition Act which um, would require the Public Service Commission to work with all the utilities in New York State to come up with a decarbonization plan um, and fast track that um, so that utilities are, are basically going transitioning to renewable energy. And secondly is we need to be um, working with uh, the New York State Energy Research Development Authority, NYSERDA, so that their various um, financial assistance programs for low and moderate income families um, are, are basically um, going to allow those families to include maintenance, dealing with toxic and mold problems, dealing with asbestos problems, because those, those, those uh, housing repairs and, and, and um, improvements are part of what you do when you energy efficiencyize a house. And when you go all electric, you need to do those by law as part of the overall energy assessment and retrofitting. So the green affordable pre-election pre gap fund is what our groups are proposing during the lobby day next Tuesday to provide um, funding to open up NYSERDA's funds to go to low and moderate income families so they can totally retrofit their homes in terms of in terms of toxic contamination problems like mold and in terms of getting them on um, all electric and getting them to have good energy efficiency will, will save them tremendous amount of money in their utility costs in years ahead. Now, one of the groups I work with is the Affordable Housing Partnership uh, down there in Sheridan Hollow. And, you know, they made the point that one of the problems they find is that, yes, we can... Um, you know, get some money to put insulation into the walls. But often the roofs of these buildings are just not at all good. And that the contractors will say, we can we can do this energy efficiency stuff, but if the heat's going out, you know, you need a whole build, build and rebuild. Is the state considering moving in, into a more holistic approach and coordinating these programs a lot better? You know, getting out of this sort of silo approach we often have, with government programs? Uh, I would say that NYSERDA is looking into that and they're listening to a lot of climate advocacy groups and housing groups that, that are advocating for that, Mark. But I don't think Governor Hochul is there at all. And that's the reason for our lobby day on Tuesday. Um, so you, ha you had this lobby day on Tuesday. I understand there's going to be a rally at noon at the um, so-called million dollar staircase, I think third or fourth floor. Um, west side of the state capitol. How can people participate in this lobby day if they're so inclined? We would love for people to come. 
between 9 and 11 um, to the Legislative Office building on State Street. Um, we're going to have um, lots of lobby day packets and bill memos and information for them, and they can join um, some meetings with legislators in the Capital District from 9 to 11. And then um, we head over to, and there's free lunch, lunch boxes, and then at 1130 to head over to the state capitol, third floor, million dollar staircase for an hour long rally where we're going to hear from a lot of legislative, uh, legislative sponsors of these great climate reform bills. And then from one to three, uh, again, meeting with more legislators. So we urge people to, to contact us. Um, they can contact me at 518. 560-1849 if they want to register for all or part of that lobby day next Tuesday. How do individual, you know, capital district legislators stand on some of the issues that people are going to be promoting on, on Tuesday? Is it purely a Democrat versus Republican divide, which is certainly what we heard at the uh, Senate hearing this week on the uh, climate law implementation, or are there some nuances among where legislators stand in a minute. Some nuances. I mean, Assemblymember Fahey and Phil Steck, you know, are, are climate champions. Um, others are, you know, um, getting up to speed. Um, but we're blessed in the Capitol District with having, you know, a good cluster of, of Assembly and Senators who are good on climate reform. But, you know, climate can't wait. We need them all to be champions this session. We've been talking with uh, Ann Rabe, the Environmental Policy Director of NYPERG. Um, I know it's NYPERG.org, but NYPERG, if people want to find out about the Lobby Day, is there a, a website they can check it out? Renewable Heat Now, Renewable Heat Now, um, New York. Yeah. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. For more information about this lobbying action on Tuesday, January 24th, that website again is renewableheatnow.org or find them on Facebook. Blaze? Yeah, yeah, Bree, it's great to see there's some progressive legislation moving forward to you know, re reduce the reliance on fossil fuels, which just have so many environmental and health impacts. As we stick with the environment, Elizabeth Press, or EP, discusses a program focused on the value of conservation through deconstruction. In December of 2022, TAP, or Troy Architecture Project, and the city of Troy hosted a deconstruction summit, a space to talk about the process of taking a building apart in a way that preserves usable materials. Today, we are joined by Daniel Morrissey from TAP, and Renee Panetta from the city of Troy to give us a report back from the deconstruction summit and to talk about what's next. Thanks for joining us today on the Hudson Mohawk magazine. First, I would just curious if either of you would like to elaborate on what deconstruction is and tell us a little bit about what came out of this summit that you hosted back in December. Yeah, thanks for having us. So deconstruction is essentially reversing the process of construction. So you go about it in exactly the opposite direction. You take off the shingles of the roof first, you take off the next layers next, finally you get to the structure. A lot of the buildings in Troy and New York State 
are relatively old and went through the period where asbestos products were being used, lead pipes and paint were being used. And so there has to be a preliminary stage of, of materials management and hazardous waste assessment um, and, of course, proper remediation. So we need updated laws around all of that. And we definitely need ways to incentivize doing deconstruction because construction and demolition waste accounts for more than two times the amount of U.S. household solid waste. That proportion is, is growing every year. The materials, once you start to deconstruct, where do you put those materials, right? Are you going to warehouse them? Are you going to directly sell them on, say, eBay or Craigslist? Um, and then who is going to do that work? You know, I'm hearing that like some of the benefits of exploring the process of deconstruction might be decreasing or mitigating our waste streams. And you started talking about like who would do this work. I imagine there's some job creation, but are there other benefits for engaging in this deconstruction process? I, I think that a piece of it is the four pillars. The first pillar is the legislation, writing the laws so that um, it supports the work that's going to be done in a way that sets it up for success, in a way that sets it up to have a strategy going into it. So things like what Daniel mentioned with asbestos are considered when you're doing the work and that there are safety protocols and such set up along with that legislation. So that's the first pillar. Second pillar would be the warehouse space. Third pillar would be the workforce development of which there's a lot of capacity there. And then the fourth one would be the data gathering and the clearinghouse or the technological storage of the information so that when these warehouses are set up, the inventory is accessible to folks in a different area very, very simply by it being available online. In addition to that, I think what's also really important to highlight in the whole conversation about deconstruction is that apparently about 12 or 13 years ago, Syracuse University had hosted some sort of summit, not similar to the one that we did, but they were addressing deconstruction, but there wasn't momentum behind it. And now both on a statewide level and on a national level, that momentum is there. And so CROWD, which is Circularity Reuse Zero Waste Development, when they had done a presentation at a conference I had been at, I was like, wow, I really'd like to be a part of that. And in being part of that, one of the things we had to do was goal setting, which is how we ended up hosting the summit collectively with TAP this year, because in January of 2022, I said, oh, I think that our goal for this year is that we'll host a deconstruction summit in Troy. Some of the, some of the additional benefits of deconstruction include general environmental health and justice. Typically with demolition, there is a great amount of dust. Even if that dust does not include asbestos, it's still toxic. Um, of course, we have all kinds of data about the racial injustices of social indicators of health, the structural oppression that people experience in low-income communities and communities of color, and the prospect of, of demolition really increases that risk immensely. During the process, the amount of dust that is mobilized into the surrounding blocks 
even for a single family house, the dust is really a, a huge concern. Now, I've seen some examples around um, projects that have gone through this process of deconstruction, but is there a place here that is leading in deconstruction like nationally? And does Troy have any plans for pilot projects? Yes, on a national level, Portland, Oregon, and uh, Austin, Texas are really, really in the forefront of that. Um, and it's what we've been looking to to start kind of like line by line iteming what needs to go for legislation based on their experiences and based on the challenges that they faced. So on a statewide level, there's already work that's being pursued. The issue is that a lot of the municipalities that are attempting it, Ithaca included, Ithaca is the closest to having something done on a municipal level. But the goal is by having something on a statewide level, that there's a lot less work that will need to be done municipally. Um, but there are a bunch of things that will get bumped down to that level. But the needs of what has to be done in a city like Troy or on a much larger scale, a city like New York, as opposed to something in Western New York in a rural community is very, very different. And so I think that the things that the assembly and the Senate determined to be necessary to pursue on a local level will help be leaders in that as will Ithaca because they've gotten really, really close to establishing some protocol. There is a pilot that I know of that will be happening at some point in the spring over in Scotia. We are meeting with TAP and working with TAP on looking at some projects that we'd like to have TAP pursue, uh, the lead agency on doing a pilot. But that, again, we have to look and see what inherent risks there are to that being done before the city is involved in that. There are ARPA funds that are put aside for demo, for building demolishing. And I've just started having conversations with the administration about what it might look like to put aside some of those funds. So they're looking to the state to see what regs need to be adapted or adjusted for us to do that as a city. You all collaborated, the city of Troy and TAP, on this uh, deconstruction summit at the end of last year. What are next steps after you held this summit uh, in terms of moving this forward? At this point, we have engaged with crowd on a statewide level, the circularity reuse zero waste development, so that they can really spearhead it on a statewide level. Their resources and depth of expertise are much higher than any of us kind of across the board. And so the only revisions or adaptations that will need to be made is to see how those four pillars merge with the goals, the visions, and the mission of what crowd already does. And so it's more of a, how, how will that dovetail? How do we integrate it into what they're already doing? And then the goal would be to have another summit this year and potentially next year Great. So as we start to wrap up here, one, I'm curious if there's something I didn't ask you about that you're interested in sharing. And two, is there a way that like the general public can engage in this process or advocate for legislation? As an advocacy organization, TAP is definitely looking to build momentum around this in the capital region and especially in Troy. And so if folks want to just reach out to TAP, you can go to tapinc.org, T-A-P-I-N-C.org. 
or you can just reach out to your city councilor or the mayor's office. I think it is really the time for this. There is strong momentum throughout the state. And I think that it's part of kind of the sustainability zeitgeist right now. Uh, people are really thinking about circularity or circular economy. And just say that you would love to have some kind of legislation. Probably the other aspect of this is the workforce development side that is that is most interesting. This is a really huge opportunity for re-entry programs from formerly incarcerated folks and anti-recidivism programs to really get people back to work after being incarcerated. It's an amazing way to learn construction by deconstructing something. I think those are excellent points. And I think piggybacking on that, when we spoke to Dr. Kellis, who is in the assembly, I think 125th district, she is Tompkins County. She was one of our keynotes. One of the interesting things that she pointed out too, was that it becomes green collar work, that it doesn't have any higher value for somebody to be an engineer than it does for them to be a laborer. They're of equal value and equal importance in the process. And so I think that echoes really well with what Daniel was saying. And then in addition to that, um, something that Diane Cohen said, she's the executive director on Finger Lakes Reuse, is that this takes something that right now we're paying $73 plus per ton to dispose of, and it turns it into revenue that is between $1,500 and $2,800 a ton. So in terms of it being people, planet, profit, you know, as Daniel said, it, there, there are so many reentry types of programs, and then there are also programs that are PhD student programs. Um, you know, the, the data gathering that's being done in um, like Circular Lab, which is associated with Cornell, is enormous. So across the board and every type of stakeholder group, there's opportunity for impact. Thanks to Elizabeth Press and their guests, Daniel Morrissey of TAP and Renee Panetta of the City of Troy for this report on the December Deconstruction Summit. For details, including links to many related sources, visit www.preservenys.org slash blog or see tapinc.org. Uh, and to see local reuse options, visit Historic Albany Foundation for information about their Architectural Parts Warehouse, a very cool local resource. Blaze? Yeah, you're you're involved with them, uh, Bria, aren't you, with Historic Albany? I am. I am a tool librarian in their tool lending library where members can borrow tools. Yeah, I just learned about the library the other day. It sounds very interesting. And, well, perhaps we could have some further conversations about it here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Blaze Bryant. You're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York.
And I'm Bria Barthel. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, joining us as a volunteer, or giving us money. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. And now on to our next story. Absolutely. A quick programming note. Hugh Johnson will be joining us in about 10 minutes for an extended conversation about weather and climate. To RPI, where students recently came down the hill to help the sanctuary with much needed tasks on Sunday. The service fraternity, Alpha Phi Omega, known as APO, has been supporting the sanctuary for many years. And Sina Bazila Hickey is there to ask these students about APO and why they participate. Could you please introduce yourself? Uh, hello, I'm Rafael. Um, I'm the current president of APO at RPI. APO has been coming regularly to the sanctuary. What is APO? Uh, so APO is Alpha Phi Omega. It's a community service uh, fraternity. Um, and we're the chapter from RPI. So we're basically just a bunch of people who like to do community service. We don't have like a house. We're, we're mostly just focused around doing service. So we like to come to Sanctuary because it's a community organization and we think our work kind of helps the community, you know, through Sanctuary. So, yeah. It's been really, really helpful. So right now you are deep into our fridge. You are wiping it out, cleaning it up. Um, tasks like these are underappreciated and so, so, so needed. Um, where are some other organizations that APO is involved in? Uh, so we've done stuff with Capital Roots, Unity House, Joseph's House, um, the Mohawk Hudson Humane Society, uh, TASP, um, Oakwood Community Center. I'm trying to think. I think that's the majority of them. We also do stuff on campus. Like we run the uh, Campus Lost and Found and uh, things like that on campus. And what attracted you to being involved in APO? Uh, so in high school, I did a lot of community service. Um, so I really liked doing it. And uh, both of my parents were in APO and both were presidents themselves. So I learned, I heard a lot about it. Um, and when I came, I was like, I thought, you know, if these people are nice, I want to join in there. Everyone here is really nice. So that's how I ended up joining. Wow, that's incredible that your parents were both in APO. And so how long has it been existing? Um, it's going to be, I believe, 100 in 2025. Um, our chapter is going to turn 76 this spring. So ours has been around. It's one of the earlier ones, for sure. Wow, that's incredible. What is the most important thing to understand about APO? The most important thing is we do service and we like to do service, but I feel like the biggest thing that I've found from it is having friends and just knowing people that are really nice and really good because I feel like you know all these people come to do service but they stick around to do other things and when you meet them you know most people who are there to do service are mostly selfless they're or you know they have they're really kind and open so the kind of people you meet in APO are really nice and just really welcoming people thank you so much Raphael you're welcome thank you all right, so here we have the kitchen cabinets are all open and empty. Could you introduce yourself, please? Hi, I'm Justin. I'm not an APO member yet, but I'm planning to join. 
Wonderful. So that means that you're currently rushing? Uh, yes, I am. I'm attending as many events as I can in like the span of two weeks uh, just to get to know APO better. I uh, do not know about rushing. How did you decide to rush? Uh, so I didn't know the like the all the details, but I was I just heard from like a friend to attend like as many like APO events as I could. So I decided to like try some out, you know, uh, get to know the members better. And overall, I think it's a really good uh, process, you know, just like talking to people, getting to know them, and just uh, learning more about APO. And so far, I think it's APO is really helpful, you know, helping the community and everything. I'm, I just feel really inspired, and I'm planning on joining in the future. So this is per recommendation? Uh, yes, from a friend of mine. But yeah, he was, he was just really like, uh, he was really, he just like inspired me, you know, like he was like just saying, oh, APO does all this stuff, all this like helpful stuff for the community and uh, you should just come and like check it out. And I was like, I was kind of intrigued. So, you know, here I am just helping you guys out. And yeah, it's been a pleasure. As a student, you're juggling so many things. So what has it been in these last two weeks that feels like this is where you want to invest your time? Uh, primarily the aspect of just helping others, like in, like, even though you have, like, all this schoolwork and stuff, you always have time to, like, you know, help the community and just, like, uh, improve your social life, you know, just to, like, extend, like, the amount of people you know and, yeah, just to, like, get to know more people. Thank you. On to the next. Oh, I see here in the corner, we've got everything on the floor. We are deep diving into the closet. Can you please introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Josh. And what brings you to APO? Why is this a, a good way to involve your time? Um, yeah, so I think what really drew me to APO was I wanted to do more community service um, type work. I did some in high school. Um, I kind of knew about the chapter on campus. Um, and... Once I kind of started to get into it more, I found it was it was a good way not only to do uh, volunteering work, but also to connect with people across campus. So, And the work spans many different organizations. So you've been learning, I assume, a lot about various organizations throughout Troy. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think this is my first time here. Um, so it's been great to get to know the sanctuary. Um, I think also just... Uh, yeah, volunteering at, at other organizations, getting to know uh, the community a bit more. I'm, I'm from out of town, so um, exploring a bit is, is definitely pretty cool. Does the work with APO at all uh, align with what you're studying and your personal mission? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I'm a computer science major. Um, I've definitely always thought that there's, you know, there's power in anything you choose to study, you can always try to use what you learn for the community And in that regard. I don't know if what I'm doing exactly aligns or is exactly um, aligned with uh, computer science, but I think it can be, and I think that's the most important part of it. Wonderful. Anything that you feel like listeners should understand about APO? Um, yeah, it's a great, it's great community um, and it's a great place to get involved with service and with the community. Thank you so much. Yeah. So over here in the corner we have the closet cleaners. Could you introduce yourself? 
I'm Dylan Weibel. I'm Sarah Seelman. So how long have you been involved in APO and why is this a good use of your time? Uh, I've been with APO for three years. I pledged with them in the spring of 2020. And uh, I think, I don't know, it's a good use of my time because we get to uh, go out and uh, serve communities and serve our campus and our chapter and uh, things that we like to do. And we get to do it together uh, as, you know, group of friends and you know it just makes it more enjoyable so spring of 2020 so you've been doing apo pretty much since the pandemic's been going on yeah yeah my semester when i pledged it was the semester where we uh had to shut down for covid so it was interesting (laughs) and what about your experience um i pledged uh fall 2021 so i've been doing it for about a year and a half um, I just, it's a great way to get connected with the Troy community and other surrounding areas. And it's a great group of friends as well. Do you think the the culture of RPI students often is up on campus and not in the community? Does this allow you access to Troy in a way that you possibly wouldn't otherwise? Definitely. I would probably not take the initiative to go down and interact with like the city as much by myself. So APO has been a great way to do that. Through my experience of working with APO coming to the campus, each time there's a different size group. How many people are generally in APO? Um, generally, we have probably around 40 members. We've had larger in past times, but with COVID, we kind of dropped a bit more than usual. Um, and then of those 40 members, usually we have about uh, 20 who are active members with uh, the rest who are inactive probably have are usually like away or they have some like hard courses or something that keep them from doing things as much as they want to. So uh, yes, generally like 20 we'll have doing stuff. And so you guys are like deep in this closet. It's not a super fun job. <laughs> Why is this, this something that you choose to do on a Saturday afternoon? It's just nice being able to help out when it might not have otherwise been gotten done. Uh, I just do it because I, I enjoy doing this kind of thing, and <laughs> I didn't have any other plans today. <laughs> well, it's very valuable. We appreciate it very, very much. Anything else that listeners should know about APO? We're just uh, happy to help anyone, really. We love doing uh, service projects, service events. We love to uh, interact with people for the most part, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we're just happy to do, to be of service. Well, thank you so much. Uh, one more. Ha, 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 ha. Can I grab you for a second? Okay. Could you please introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Jason Jacobs. Uh, I'm a sophomore, I'm a computer science major, uh, music minor. Yeah. And why is APO a good use of your Sunday afternoon? Um, I like doing community service. It's fun. I can't imagine doing anything more fun with my Sunday afternoon. How does APO align with your studies and your mission? Uh, well, it gives me a purpose outside of, you know, the same old thing every day of sleep, eat, study, you know, sleep, eat, study, sleep, eat, study. It 
uh, makes me feel like there's a purpose to what I'm doing because when you're studying a lot of times it can feel like you're just focusing on theoretical things. So it breaks up the monotony of the student schedule? Yeah, and it, it's not just like monotony. It, it's like um, it feels like it, it, it impacts people because a lot of like studying, you know, if you get a job, you can impact people. But a lot of the process of being a student is innately selfish, I would say, because you have to just focus on yourself for four years. But it feels like something's missing if you just do that every day. So APO works with a lot of different organizations. Is this a way for you to see the needs that organizations have so that you can use your work in a way to align with the needs? Yeah, uh, I, I think so. But there's also things where, you know, like I'm sweeping a floor and that's not related to computer science, but I enjoy it because it cleans up a place that helps people. So it like it also ends up affecting people. Well, thank you so very much. Anything else that listeners should know about APO? Uh, this is my first rush event, so um, take that into consideration with my perspective on APO. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. Alpha Phi Omega has been really supportive of many community organizations, including the Sanctuary. Thanks to all the APO members who have swept our floors, cleaned out closets, picked up trash, and done so many other overlooked uh, maintenance tasks that allow us to focus on our programs and activities. Blaze? Absolutely, Bria. And it is good to see so oftentimes we hear on college campuses, you know, bad things about fraternities. And it's great to hear about the incredible work APO has been doing. Before we get to National Weather, retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson, I just want to quickly promote that the sanctuary has a new executive director, Kristen Holler, was just announced late Monday. Uh, there is a release that you can read on our website, mediasanctuary.org. Now to our extended conversation with Hugh Johnson. Hey there, Hugh. Hey, how you doing, Blaze? I'm doing all right, thank you. Yourself? Good. We, we finally got a real snowstorm in January. Didn't think it was going to happen, but yeah, we got it today. Yes, yes, we did, and the snow just keeps on coming. Well, actually, stop now, but we're going to get more. We'll talk about that later, uh, a couple of days from now. We'll get another storm. <laughs> oh, I thought we were supposed to be getting a little bit more, um, you know, through through Monday into Tuesday here. Uh, just flurries. Um, I, I don't think we'll get any more accumulations until Wednesday midday. Okay, good deal. So things should be good for folks to go to the uh, uh, the food pantry or, or that's or the uh, Catholic Charities uh, food donation uh, thing in Lansingburg. So that's good to hear. Now, you said something very interesting in a pre-show uh, email about the liquid ratio in the snow. Tell us about that. Okay. Um, climatologically, we're, right now we're at our, climatologically at our coldest point of winter. We're supposed to be anyways. And at that point, 
when snow falls, we're generally getting a 13 to 1 ratio. What that means is if you take 13 inches of snow and melt it completely down, you get an inch of liquid. And that's what our normal liquid ratio was. Well, this snow was very different at my house. I had more like a 6 or 7 to 1 liquid ratio. So for, okay, for instance, I had 6.8 inches of snow and I melted down to 0.93 inches of liquid. So that's a wet snow. That's a really, really wet snow. So uh, anything under 10 to 1 ratio is pretty, it's getting wet. So basically the the snow to, to water ratio is another way of saying, hey, it's really heavy snow. Absolutely. And be careful yeah, shoveling. That's very, very, you got it. I got it indeed today, the eight inches or whatever in Albany. Um, we yep. had lots of cloudy gray days, but not much snow until Sunday night. What, Without getting into the forecast, what's been going on in the past few, few, few weeks? Well, we've been in this southwest flow, the jet stream. If you take the jet stream, it's gone from like Baja, California, up through uh, uh, New England, say, and we've been sort of sitting on this, what we call a baroclinic zone where it's been much warmer to the South and fairly cold, close to the normal cold out in the West and upper Great Lakes. And we're kind of in this conduit of where we had one storm after another, we had a lot of rain and we had slop. And now with today, we got basically a snowstorm one storm after another. And because of where we're at, we're not getting good clearing behind any particular storm. We're not getting a big, surge of high pressure and cold air coming in. So the clouds just linger. And that's exactly what's going to happen this week. We're not going to see a whole lot of sun this week. I won't get into the storm, but unfortunately it's not looking good for sunshine this week and possibly even to the weekend. We might get a few breaks here and there tomorrow and maybe Thursday, but don't count on it. <laughs> so moving from weather back to climate, Last week we talked, you, you wanted to discuss carbon dioxide emissions and what's yes. the impact of those on our weather and how do you think we're making progress on reducing carbon emissions? Okay, very good. Again, review CO2 is the main reason why we're having climate change. Uh, we, we've almost doubled the amount of CO2 we put in the atmosphere from the pre-industrial age starting back in the early 1900s to now. And that's the cause of our global warming because CO2 holds heat. And, and also the CO2 lasts a long time in the atmosphere. Once you get it up there, it's hard to get rid of it. So that's the dilemma. Now, we've talked about all this. We, we've had a lot of talk and, and positive talk about a greener energy, about reducing CO2 emissions. But I'm going to cut to the chase. It's not happening. It's not happening. If you look at the charts, you look at the statistics, we did get a reduction during the COVID, during 2020, when we were in lockdown or close to lockdown and all that. Unfortunately, we've kind of gone back to normal, even though some people are still Zooming at home and all that. We've gone back to just as bad as we were in 2019, if not a trifle worse. So we're putting 36.5 billion, uh, rather, yeah, billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year. China's number one offender with one-sixth of the carbon emissions of the world coming from China, but we're number two, half of what China has. India, number three, Russia and Japan are, are battling, battling out for fourth and fifth. The most popular, the most, uh, the country with the, uh, per person 
with the most CO2 per person, believe it or not, is a, call, a country called Qatar, a um, Arabic country next to Saudi Arabia. Uh, they uh, for per person, that's the worst country. But the bottom line is, we're not doing a good job at all. So uh, until it happens, we're not going to start cooling things. We're just not. Now, let's get uh, let's talk a little further about it. Uh, one of the ways to do this, of course, we can we can try to drive less. We can try to bike more. But the electric car is probably one of the best ways, maybe, to really start the ball rolling. Well, right now, six percent of cars in the country are being driven or, or electric vehicle. And that's much better than it was f- 10 years ago or five years ago. Um, and it's up to 18% in California. California is ahead of the game because there's so many cars and things like that. But we got a long way to go to start turning that curve back down so we can have less CO2 in the atmosphere. And the big problem is the cost of them have come down pretty affordable, some of the models, but the big problem is how quick you can charge the battery and how long you get, how long you can go on a battery. And most of the cars go with maybe 250 miles on a charge. And then you have, to, it takes over an hour to charge. You know, we have a gas car, you run into the, to the uh, gas station and you're out in five minutes, unless you're in Jersey, it might be 10 minutes. That's because they do it yourself. It seems to take longer, but it's still 10 minutes or less. Whereas most uh, EVs, it takes an hour or many hours to charge. Now, there is some good news there. There are some technologies that read that they are starting to charge them much quicker. The problem is cost, and also that we're talking about very powerful, using a lot of electricity and a lot of, uh, of voltage, and, of course, it could be a fire risk. And those kind of charging can only be done in special places, and there's very few of them. But there is hope. There is hope that we can turn the corner, maybe, but we better do it fast because we are we are still not we're not dropping our CO two emissions. We, the goal is to get half to get us down to fifty percent of what we do at the peak, which is now to two thousand thirty. That's only seven years away. I don't think it's happened. I really don't. And then in two thousand fifty, we're supposed to go to zero carbon emissions. Good luck on that. So we got a long way to go, folks. Yeah, especially when you consider Hugh Johnson, there's no bigger joke and more comedic and sad joke than the 118th Congress, who can't even get their own act together, let alone do a darn thing to help with climate change, which it seems like they don't even want to touch with a 200-foot pole, let alone a 10-foot pole. And and I wonder... Yeah. Yeah. You you know, I wonder about this too, Hugh, because I remember, you know, growing up in the, in the nineties and I would hear something on the game shows, you know, like the price is right specifically where they're giving away a cars and they say specifically, they mention California emission. How come California has always kind of been ahead of the curve on the emission stuff? Well, because I mean, it has. If you look at the smog situation, L.A. was the last city and still has the smog issues. It's not as bad as it used to be, but I mean, there are just so many cars in California. They don't have mass transit. They have very little mass transit in L.A. and I think San Francisco is a little bit more. But I mean, that's and L.A. is just huge. It's the second largest city with at least five million people, and so they had to. They didn't have a choice. I mean. Ventura Highway, and, and, and you hear about the highways around L.A., how horribly gridlocked. I mean, 
I lived in D.C. and that was bad enough, but I think L.A. is even a, is, a, is a, even worse. So they had no choice. They had to do that. That's you know, it's basically sink or swim type of thing. So they, they got on board with this stuff quicker than most other places were, you know, here in Albany. We still don't have the traffic problems. I mean, we do get a little bit, but come on, compared to other places, it's a walk in the park. So we don't have to, you know, people don't want to change their lifestyle. They don't have to. In California, they, they pretty much have to. <laughs> So we've been talking about cars, and you've made lots, get, given me a lot of new information. It, but what's the relative role of cars versus like corporations and private jets, and also buildings? Our first segment was about the push for all electric buildings. How how would you sort of rank those in terms of what creates the most problem? Well, I think uh, cars is at least number two. They're, they're, you know, industrial, you know, gas and oil. Coal is still a number one, but uh, cars are certainly up there. Uh, again, getting EV, you know, getting us up to 100% EV is not going to, it's not going to end CO2 emissions. It's going to drop it to zero. But and I, I didn't run a, an analysis, but it would probably cut it back considerably. If we were, if we were all to have EVs, I would say. We could we could probably go to at least fifty percent down, but yeah, you have buildings, you have factories, you have planes, and they're all and planes will never. I don't think we'll see electric planes in our lifetime. That's not happening. But we can see electric cars. I mean, it's something that I think we have a shot at possibly doing at least getting to electric cars. And I really really hope we can do that. But we have this Congress in there now. Uh, the House, you know, went to you know the other the other party. I don't want to get political, but you know. It's a different philosophy. Not that I mean, a lot of Republicans are on board now with with climate change, but the, the main theme and the you know the people that are on top are trying to keep a, a lid on it. But anyways, so but I think yeah, it, it's complicated. There's a lot of other aspects that have to be accomplished before we can really turn the corner. But I think if we can get a lot more sales of EV, we will start the progress. We really will. But it's going to take time, and we got to get the that technology of, of charging them faster up to speed. And hopefully we can do that in the next five years. Yeah. Well, Hugh, you're not being political because let's be honest, the weather has been more predictable than this Congress in terms of what they're going to yeah. be able to yeah. do because yeah. they, they be just, <laughs> it is, it is frankly disorganized dysfunction is the best way to put it now Let's yeah. talk a little bit about chaos, you know, since we mentioned the 118th Congress. <laughs> Let's tie it back to weather, as only yeah. a okay. somewhat adequate radio personality like myself can do and say what's in the forecast, including, well, a little bit more weather. Yeah. Well, we've been in a very active, as they discussed early in the show, uh, pattern here. Uh, we've had storm after storm, and it's just been a really hiked up jet stream and, and storm track and, and, you know, California is getting a break. Now they're, 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 the, uh, the, um, the river flow has, uh, the jet stream has changed. They're not getting slammed with the atmospheric river, but we're going to get um, these storms are now starting to hit down in the Southwest and hit up to us. And we got another one coming on Wednesday. And what's going to happen is it's going to come in in the afternoon and come in, could come in for the rush hour. It could be a really dicey rush hour with snow rate of an inch an hour during rush hour. This one, though, unlike the other one, this one this one had a perfect track, and we still had a very wet, heavy snow. But this one, this next one's going to actually track further west, 
secondary development, but still the main primary stays west. So we're going to get a changeover to a wintry mix or possibly just rain later on the night. But we're going to get several inches or more wet, heavy snow before that happens again. So, and that's going to happen right during rush hour. So watch out for that Wednesday. Tomorrow's quiet, just a few snow showers, clouds, and temperatures in the mid-upper 30s with a bit of wind. And then the storm Wednesday, Wednesday night. Should be out of here by Thursday. It looks like we'll get what we call a dry slot working in, and that should shut it down or at least bring it to a minimal amount. Uh, so I think most of the damage will be Wednesday evening. And then after that, we'll, things will quiet down a little bit, it looks like. And there's some really cold air perched in the north and west, but it's, it's going to have a hard time getting in. But we'll, we'll stay kind of in chilly, cloudy, and gray with a few smaller storms to deal with through the weekend and early next week. Oh, wonderful. Chilly, cloudy, and gray. Who would think it? We're, yeah. So we're back to life as normal for this this month. Uh, I've yeah. been well, reminded. One thing I want to point out. Le- oh, one, go ahead, Hugh. Yeah. Okay. So I was, I was just going to say one more thing. We've been above normal since December 28th every single day, including the snowstorm today. If you take our average high and low, we've been above normal every day for 28 since December 28th. So it's almost. Um, 20, it's like 25 days in a row now. <laughs> okay, and I've been reminded when we were talking about electric cars that the Sanctuary for Independent Media does have a charger for electric cars on a small awesome. parking lot near Freedom Square. So we're trying to do our bit as much as we can. Sure. Yeah, a lot for of sure. stops are having them now. Yep, yep. And, yeah, and even like the, the bike trail, uh, Pearl Street, I think there's one now. So there are more and more popping up, and that's great news. Absolutely. Okay, and I'm- well, we are, yeah, we are flat out of time, Hugh Johnson. Uh, we will catch up with you here in of a few weeks. So, uh, yep. you know, in, in, enjoy, uh, you know, have a great uh, couple of weeks here, and uh, we'll catch up with you at some point next month. All right, I'm going to find some sunshine. That's where I'm going. <laughs> Good for you. Good. We'll get back you. with you. Okay, I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah, although we might have to do a remote from an undisclosed sunshine location. Now, a quick just <laughs> public service thing here as we are dealing with all this snow and stuff. Please, please, please shovel your sidewalks. Uh, you know, we've got parents with strollers, people with disabilities and just general pedestrians walking around. And, you know, we got to do our part to and do the best we can to keep the sidewalks clean. So there's my annual soliloquy about sidewalks and snow. And that wraps up this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We hope you've enjoyed it. I'm Blaze Bryant. And I'm Bria Barthel. Our engineer is the wonderful Sina Bazilahiki. We want to thank all of the volunteers who make this radio program possible. Other contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley and Elizabeth Press. We welcome new volunteers. If you'd like to join our team, just contact us. No experience needed. We'll train you. Indeed, we will. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice. Produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. 
And thanks for listening. Catch you in the future. 